We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Erica Weimer. Today we welcome Dr. Jennifer Bretler and Kimberly Suri from Christiana Care. They will report on the patient safety indicators. Internationally renowned psychiatrist Dr. H. Stephen Moffick has the Talk 10 Tuesday mental health report. We'll also hear the latest on the public health emergency from Terry Fletcher. Lori Johnson has the coding news. Kim Powell is at the Tuesday News Desk. And Dr. Reamer presents her talkback segment. Now here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and a man who has pardoned plenty of turkeys over the years, Chuck Buck. <laughs> Thanks, Clark Anthony. Thank you very much. Hello, everybody. <laughs> and welcome to the 532nd live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And good morning, Erica. I guess it's better than being a turkey. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, all. Well, they're back, the PSI ladies, with the final installment in our series about patient safety indicators. Yes, Kim and uh, Dr. Jennifer Brettler from Christiana Care will be sharing their experience on PSIs with us. Yep, I'm sure you found this series to be helpful as well, did you? I did. I think it's been very enlightening. Very good. Well, uh, thanks again, Erica, for bringing this critically important topic to our attention. And speaking of critically important topics, what's the topic of your talkback segment today? Well, I'm going to touch on sepsis and make some COVID comments as well. We look forward to hearing your talkback segment, Erica, as we always do. And we have much news to report this morning. And we begin with Tim Powell. Tim is at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. Thanks, Chuck. And I want to give a Thanksgiving wish to Medicaid. Sometimes people think of Medicaid as a single program. Medicaid actually has 52 different varieties. Each state has its own version, and there are versions of Medicaid for the Commonwealths of Guam and Puerto Rico. I'm visiting my mother in California where Medicaid has been renamed Medi-Cal. While Medicare and Medicaid were both enacted at the same time in 1965, Medicaid, unlike Medicare, was not designed as a federal program, but a state program for which Medicare uh, would provide uh, funding support. Medicaid also started off as a program to care simply for women and children that had no other form of insurance. Since the creation of the Medicaid program, the list of mandatory services required by the federal government to get federal matching funds has expanded. Additionally, Medicaid eligibility to a large extent is governed by state laws. People eligible for Medicaid in one state may not be eligible in another state. In California, like 37 other states, it allows people that earn less than 138% of the federal poverty level to enroll in Medicaid. Not all states are thrilled with providing Medicaid, and Arizona was the last state to create a Medicaid program in 1982. We often hear of Medicaid waivers. If a state wishes to modify how it provides any of the minimum services required for Medicaid, the state must be granted a waiver from CMS. Today, Medicaid currently provides free health insurance for over 74 million Americans. Medicaid is also the payer for the majority of childbirths in our country. During this Thanksgiving week, I would like to give thanks to the Medicaid program for the care it provides to so many Americans who can't afford health care in the United States. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and the national correspondent for ICD-10 Monitor. It's Tuesday, it's November the 22nd, and you're listening to the 532nd live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. What do you do when CMS unloads barrels and barrels of new codes in your lap, like fallen leaves? How do you stay on top of your game as a coding expert? You subscribe to the ICD-10 Monitor Coding Portal. 
For an unbelievably low subscription of $35, you have access to the superstars of coding. Lorianne Bryant, Dr. Eric Reamer, Terry Fletcher, and Lori Johnson. You also have access to more than 40 educational webcasts. Plus, you'll earn CEUs to maintain your credentials. The retail value, more than $5,960. But for a limited time, your subscription is only $35 per webcast, a savings of 75%. Do what the smart folks did at Duke University. They subscribed, and so should you. Subscribe today to the ICD-10 Monitor Coding Portal. Now's the time for the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report with Lori Johnson, and good morning, Lori Johnson. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. As we shift our thinking to the end of year, there are many tasks to be completed to ensure accurate and billing and coding. Here are the tasks that I have in mind. First, verify MSDRG version 40 new technology items are being coded. Run a frequency list and compare with, you can compare it with the pharmacy department or central supply to ensure that those codes are getting, getting um, sent in. A list of the ICD-10 PCS codes can be found on the CMS website under the fiscal year 2023 final role um, IPPS, and then the file is MAC implementation file number 8. Second is to begin looking for your external coding auditor. Identify the parameters for your study. What are you interested in? What do you want that auditor to review? You want to complete your audit by the end of February 2023. The goal of this audit is to ensure that the new ICD-10 PCS and CM codes are being used correctly, and they're actually picking them up. It is important to get multiple quotes for this review. Third is to continue provider education on the new E&M guidelines. You want to ensure that providers will be ready for January 1st. Fourth, the new CPT code should be added into the charge master for implementation. You may want to explore if it is possible to include the ICD-10 PCS new technology codes in the CDM or your formulary for medications. It is also a time to identify line items that are no longer used. The updated charge master will be activated for January 1st services. Fifth is update the facility-specific coding guidelines. Did you update the guidelines for October 1st? You should also complete an update to the guidelines for the CPT 2023 update. Number six is to ensure that your price transparency files have been updated to include the CPT HICPIC files for calendar year 23. Seven is verify that you are receiving monies for the COVID cases that has been part of the PHE. So the end of year is a busy time for healthcare providers, but it's important that you make your list and check it twice so that you are ready for the beginning of January. And with that, happy Thanksgiving to all, and I'll turn it back to Erica. Well, Lori, I don't think that was naughty. I think it was nice. Thank you. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is the Senior Healthcare Executive with Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, and thank you again, Lori Johnson. (laughs) 
In just a couple of days, we're going to be celebrating that fine American tradition we call Thanksgiving, a time to give thanks. And that's why we invited Dr. H. Stephen Moffick to join us this morning with his thoughts on giving thanks. Dr. Moffick. Thanks, Chuck. Now, really, all we have to do is take screenwriter Norman Lear's advice to his 44,000 Instagram followers on his 100th birthday this past July in order to appreciate the gratefulness that Thanksgiving is all about. He said, quote, my God, the miracle of being alive with everything that's available in the moment, treasure it, use it with love, end of quote. As our national holiday of Thanksgiving approaches, there's certainly much to be thankful about in terms of mental health, despite the trying year, losses, and psychological challenges. Let's be reminded that gratefulness is associated with more happiness and longer lives, and has anti-anxiety properties, too. The challenge, generally, is not to take the good things for granted. Here are some psychiatric developments during 2022 that I am grateful for. In regards to risk assessment and responsiveness, take the COVID-19 pandemic. This Thanksgiving, which, despite COVID still being around, I call the COVID relief Thanksgiving, we are at least closer now, at least for now, to returning to usual life. But with the added bonus of appreciation for what we lost in the meanwhile, yet gained with a new Zooming way of communication. In regards to psychiatric diagnoses, heading the list was the addition of prolonged grief disorder. Research has indicated that about 10% of people have trouble adequately recovering from grief over time longer than one year. The diagnosis covers them along with the development of specific psychotherapeutic processes. Unspecified mood disorder has been revived and can be conceived as a correction of a mistake. DSM-5 and the ICD removed this diagnosis in 2013, but it turns out that it seems needed to avoid missing potential mood disorders that need more time to clarify. In society, as well as society, during the past year, we have had an increased emphasis on racism, inequity, and inclusiveness. In our DSM-5, that has been reflected in a focus on race and discrimination being added to the increased attention being paid to the social determinants of mental health. Then we get to the most important treatments. Most promising, formal research continues about the potential benefits of the psychedelics for depression, PTSD, and death anxiety, as well as enhancing a sense of cosmic connection in a time of interpersonal conflict all of this depending on dosage in a supportive therapeutic setting. The risk includes unmanaged public usage before enough research and a potential emphasis on investor profit over outcomes. We certainly need new and different psychiatric medications to add to what we already have, and there haven't been any in years. Let's look for that in 2023, Erica, and back to you. Thanks, Steve. We are grateful for your insights. That was internationally renowned psychiatrist Dr. H. Stephen Moffick. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Dr. Moffick, thank you again. And I'm very thankful that Dr. Moffick is the resident psychiatrist here at Talk 10 Tuesday. And it is Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by, please. Coding for E&M, Evaluation and Management Services, is a challenge. And the 2023 E&M updates to codes and guidelines are complex. You need to master them now because they will impact revenue and compliance. Good news. In an upcoming webcast, Becky, Rodri, and Jacobson will walk you through the 2023 E&M chapter and category guidelines specific to emergency department and hospital visit professional services. 
She will provide details that support each category and demonstrate how to compliantly document each element of the E&M and ultimately select the correct level of service to help ensure a compliant reimbursement. Learn from Becky Rodri and Jacobson. Register now for the 2023 E&M Workshop, Master the New Guidelines for ED and Hospital Visit Professional Services. Now on sale at the ICD University Bookstore. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, we continue our series on Patient Safety Indicators, PSIs. It's a series being produced by ICD-10 Monitor in association with Christiana Care. Now, first we're going to hear from Kimberly Siri and then Dr. Jennifer Bredler. And good morning, Kim. Welcome back. Thanks for having us back for our fourth and final segment on AHRQ Patient Safety Indicators. We're going to keep our focus on PSI-90, the Composite Patient Safety Indicator. In order to glean meaning from your facility's PSIs and know what action needs to be taken to improve your metrics, you need to dig beyond the data itself. Part of our PSI improvement process includes a collaborative group, including CDI, coding, and clinicians who have a shared understanding of the AHRQ technical specifications. We scrutinize each case through a coding, CDI, and physician champion review process prior to our final coding. We take this data beyond the coding and CDI process to a PSI-90 clinical committee for additional retrospective review for clinical learning opportunities. Let's take a look at patient safety indicator 11, postoperative respiratory failure. This PSI focuses on elective surgical discharges with a secondary diagnosis of acute post-procedural respiratory failure, prolonged ventilation, or reintubation. A few of the denominator exclusions include patients who have acute respiratory failure as a primary diagnosis or secondary diagnosis with present on admission of yes, a tracheostomy, malignant hypothermia, neuromuscular disorders, and degenerative neurological disorders. The neuromuscular disorders, including Guillain-Barre, myasthenia gravis, and other myopathies need to be present on admission to serve as an exclusion for this PSI. However, not all of these conditions have to be POA of yes, as is the case with malignant hyperthermia. Certain procedure codes will exclude your patient or potentially include your patient, so be sure you have a strong second-level coding review process to make sure your major OR procedures are properly coded and abstracted. Keep in mind that not all respiratory failure following surgery is actually a complication of the procedure and documentation should reflect if the respiratory failure is secondary to an underlying medical illness or if it was related to the surgery itself. Dr. Brettler, what can you tell us about PSIs 12 and 13? Thanks, Kim. Patient Safety Indicator 12 identifies patients with a perioperative PE or proximal DVT as a secondary diagnosis. When evaluating this PSI, it is helpful to have a knowledge of anatomy and to closely review radiology reports to confirm that a pulmonary embolism is appropriately documented as segmental for single subsegmental, the latter of which is not an inclusion for PSI-12. Additionally, a distal DVT does not trigger a PSI, however, a proximal DVT will. Another consideration is whether the PE or DVT was present on admission. Other exclusions include certain procedures, such as pulmonary arterial or dialysis access thrombectomy that occurs before or the same day as the first OR procedure. There's also a subset of acute brain or spinal injury diagnosis codes that serve as exclusion as well. 
Patient safety indicator 13, or postoperative sepsis rate, is another PSI that looks at elective surgeries with an admission type of three, meaning elective. So once again, you wanna be sure your admission type is properly abstracted. This PSI excludes discharges in which patients have a principal or secondary diagnosis of sepsis POA, or discharges with a principal or secondary diagnosis of infection POA. Also, obstetric and newborn patients are excluded. In cases where sepsis is not present on admission, consider if there are clinical indicators that support the presence of a localized infection at time of admission. If this is not apparent in the documentation, a query could be help to clarify. Overall, PSIs play an integral role in the shaping of quality and safety in healthcare systems. With a shared understanding of both the coding and clinical components associated with PSIs, you could transform your data into meaningful information and in turn make a significant impact in reducing the number of PSIs at your organization. Back to you, Dr. Reamer. This has been an amazing series, and we thank you both for sharing your knowledge and experience with us. You just heard from Kimberly Siri. She is the Associate Director of Coding and Quality at Christiana Care. And then you heard from Dr. Jennifer Brettler, who is the Medical Director of Clinical Documentation Integrity for Christiana Care and a Physician Advisor for the Utilization Management Department. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And thank you again, Dr. Brettler and Kimberly Siri. We appreciate this great series, and thank you, thank you, thank you. As you heard Clark Anthony announce when we began our program a couple of minutes ago, Terry Fletcher joins us now for an update on COVID-19, the public health emergency. Terry, what is the latest in this ongoing saga? Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, listeners. Well, it is a bit confusing in where we stand with the current PHE. As expected, the COVID-19 public health emergency was extended for the 11th time on October 13th, which meant another 90 days, extending many of the CARES Act 1135 waivers through January 11th, 2023. This extension confused many of us in the industry because a 60 Minutes News interview in September where President Joe Biden stated that the pandemic is over. So if this is the case, then why was there another extension a month after that aired? And why was there not a formal announcement last week, a 60-day notice, that there, this will be the last renewal? And that question does need to be answered. CMS has already alerted, CMS has alerted providers that many nursing home compliance standards have phased out and actually only 11 states right now still have PHE in place, while other the, the other 39 states have lifted their PHE mandates or let them expire. This means that physicians providing, for example, telehealth services for patients, 80% of the country, not in their home state, would have to be licensed in the state they are performing these services or where the patient is located. But that's just one example of the confusion. On Tuesday night, November 15th, the Senate voted in a bipartisan fashion of 62 to 36, to end the pandemic emergency. This was a joint resolution, 63, passed by the Senate and is waiting signature in the House. Every every Republican senator voted to end it, and also 12 Democrats, as well as an independent who caucuses with the Democrats. This resolution was brought forward by Senator Roger Marshall, who's on the Senate floor, referenced the president's remark of the pandemic being over, along with other remarks on increased government spending. So continuing the PHE when no public health emergency, and I'm air quoting, exists per the Social Security Act and definition has major fiscal concerns for the country. We cannot continue to use the PHE as a budgetary fix to continue to fund programs that are not tied directly to the PHE. There's an expectation now, even a 12th extension of the PHE could be extended since the first, of, since the first one in January 2020 
because the lack of a public statement that should have been made on November 11th. There was no posted statement. So why do we need the 60 days when the PHE is actually every 90 days? Because physicians and hospitals are now used to the renewal and are continuing to make practice decisions based on PHE flexibilities and not necessarily pre or post pandemic rules. As of now, the telehealth flexibilities will end 151 days after the PHE expires. This is because the Consolidation Appropriations Act of 2022 would kick in, and that's also in the Medicare final rule. This would allow for some flexibilities like telehealth not to be tied to the PHE, but to be reviewed for five months to determine if a permanency of many of the PHE policies should continue. In July, the House passed the Advancing Telehealth Beyond COVID Act, but that legislation still must be approved by the Senate for Medicare patients to be to continue to use telehealth as it is now through 2024. Also with the new House and Senate just put in place, again, we could see some delays on that rule in, for the next couple of months. In addition to the end of the PHE, what it would trigger is a Medicaid redetermination process that would cause major disenrollment of beneficiaries. Over the course of about a year, HHS estimates that up to 15 million people could lose their health insurance coverage under Medicaid. Because again, during the pandemic, it was important not to disrupt the Medicaid coverage. And so Medicare beneficiary or Medicaid beneficiaries got to keep it without actually qualifying or being eligible for it. So now the states will have to reconsider that once this ends. PHE also has implications for healthcare workers with the November 2021 vaccine mandate still in place. However, there is a coalition of 22 states that has filed a petition seeking to repeal the Biden administration's rule that requires employees to be vaccinated against the COVID-19 if they work in healthcare facilities that receive Medicare and Medicaid funding. This is because we have staffing shortages. Per Becker's Health Hospital Blog, the petition filed under the Administration Procedures Act, the Attorney General's request that CMS redraw, withdraw its vaccine mandate for healthcare workers and all related guidance, citing the most recent pandemic circumstances. Under the PHE, hospitals also continue to get a 20% pay bump for COVID patients. According to Section 3710 of the CARES Act, hospitals are reimbursed by the government an extra 20% for each hospitalized Medicaid, Medicare patient. The only criteria for that extra money, a positive COVID test. So for instance, hospital Medicare patient with um, pneumonia without COVID is about 7,700 to the hospital. But with COVID, that reimbursement jumps to 9,200. A Medicare patient with acute respiratory distress syndrome requiring a ventilator without COVID, the bill's about 34,000, but with COVID, that Medicare patient now is worth almost 40, and the list goes on. So continuing to extend the PHE cannot just be about money or extending telehealth. There are far-reaching mandates, fiscal concerns, and issues of patient access to care unrelated to COVID that, we need, to be that need to be considered. If there's not an end in sight, we have to figure out what are we going to do. We cannot continue to use PHE for budgetary fixes. And with that, Erica, back to you. Thank you, Terry. That was nationally prominent professional coder, auditor, and consultant, Terry Fletcher. And once again, here's Dr. Erica Reamer with her very popular segment here at Talk to Tuesday. It's called Talk Back. And Dr. Reamer, it's all yours. I had a potential client contact me recently regarding issues they were having with sepsis denials. They had undergone an independent audit of their records and the auditors agreed with fully half of the denials that had been received. I suspected I intuited the root cause and asked them a single question. Can you guess what I asked? I asked if their providers were still using SIRS, the systemic inflammatory response, as their criteria to make the diagnosis of sepsis. 
The answer was, of course, affirmative. I believe I frightened them away when I warned them that I was likely to agree with the auditors, too, because I am squarely in the camp of requiring organ dysfunction to make the definitive diagnosis of sepsis. There is no magic bullet to destroy denials when it comes to sepsis. Providers need to make the diagnosis correctly, but even that will not avert all denials. Although payers are supposed to cover their beneficiaries' medically necessary costs, they, most of them are for-profit organizations, and another goal of theirs is to hang on to as much money as they can. So you can't blame an insurer for trying, but you can try to protect yourself as best you can. This requires having your providers, coders, and CEDISs all on the same page with recognizing, diagnosing, treating, and coding sepsis when it is present and recognizing when it is not present. I am doing an encore presentation of my sepsis webinar for MedLearn on January 26th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. I was hoping you could help me update my presentation by sending me interesting cases of clinical validation and examples of denials. Obviously, remove all PHI and email it to cbuck at medlearnmedia.com. And please join me for the webinar to see how you can try to help your organization manage sepsis. Pivoting. It astonishes me how few people wear masks on planes nowadays. There still is COVID around, regardless of what they do at the PHE, as Terry was talking about. I flew to Kansas City to celebrate my brother's milestone birthday, and my husband and I were part of the probably 5% of people still wearing masks in the airport and on the airplane. I no longer feel anxious about it because I don an N95 mask. Surgical masks protect others. N or KN95s protect you. The BQ.1 and the BQ.11 subvariants are now the dominant variants in the United States, overshadowing the, B, overshadowing the BA vari, uh, variants. These subvariants are considered highly immune evasive, but the bivalent booster provides protection because the strains are descendants of Omicron. COVID vaccine fatigue has really impacted uptake of the bivalent booster shot, which is unfortunate. Only 8.5% of eligible Americans have gotten their booster. In September, a forecast by the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices stated that if approximately 50% of people got the booster, they predicted roughly 25 million infections, 1 million hospitalizations, and 100,000 deaths could be averted by the end of March 2023. I tried to see what the COVID-19 rate in my community is, but the data isn't to be had. And nowadays, most people just home test, and their infections are never logged anywhere anyway. The infection is still rolling around through my husband's department at the hospital. It started up when travel was relaxed, and everyone began attending medical conferences again. And kids keep bringing it home from school. Here we go again. Thanksgiving is right here. And then there are the winter holidays. We will likely have another winter surge before we settle into some sort of a stable endemic state. The PHE public health emergency is being extended into 2023. But everyone is going to have to decide what level of risk they are willing to take and act accordingly. I would like to put a plug in for getting your bivalent booster. For me, I love not being sick. 
I haven't had a respiratory illness since March 2020 when I had the original strain of COVID-19. I personally will continue to wear a mask traveling forever, and I will reliably get my boosters whenever I am instructed to do so. I wish you all a happy and a safe Thanksgiving. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Erica, very, very much. And folks, that is going to be a wrap for our 532nd live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And of course, I want to thank our special guests today, Dr. Jennifer Brettler, Laurie Johnson in the Coding Report, Tim Powell, Dr. H. Stephen Moffat, and Kimberly Surrey. And a very special thank you to my co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. And thank you again, everybody, for being on our broadcast this morning. And I just want to say... Happy Thanksgiving to all of you. I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Talk 10 Tuesday and ICD-10 Monitor. Have a great Thanksgiving and a wonderful Thanksgiving weekend, everyone. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.